Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Aryoban Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 136. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we're delighted to come before you once again, bringing our thoughts and our concerns, sharing our hearts with you, and knowing that you are a God who cares and who understands where we're at. We, you understand the, the frailty of the human heart because you created us. We celebrate the fact that you are our Heavenly Father and that you have promised that you would be with us and that you would provide for us, even in the midst of difficult times such as the... Um, awful pandemic that's raging around the world is now even more uh, concentrated in India these days. Our heart goes out to that country and to um, the lives uh, there that are being impacted in such a profoundly negative way because of the uh, of the, um, the COVID situation, the deaths, the illnesses. Lord, loss of human life is not something that we take lightly. Um, we don't know the state of affairs uh, that, uh, of, of why um, this is happening in so many places and why it's just uh, flares up in different countries and um, what the importance of this all is. Lord, we know that you're still in control. And um, so we're not going to try and uh, seek to completely understand uh, how you're operating in and through this pandemic. But we know that you have not forsaken us. The promises given to your people are trustworthy. We will stand on those promises. We will continue to look to the scriptures for our sure hope. We know that Messiah is the one who activates those promises. It is his life in us. It is as we are staying connected to him that we can know that the promises are made sure. Of course, by the power of the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit, who we celebrate. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together to um, to discuss words of truth, to discuss your um, scriptures, to uh, ingest the truths that you've left for us and you've preserved for us. Uh, help us to lead lives that are exemplary of the um, name that you have bestowed upon us. Um, Forgive us where we fail one another. Forgive us where we, we, we judge one another. Uh, continue to protect us from the pandemic and provide for us uh, during these difficult um, financial times as well. Uh, be with us tonight. We'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Yeshua. Amen.
Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Ariel Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at a congregation called The Harvest, in Ke- which is uh, the Hebrew name is Kehilat Tunuval in Thornton, Colorado. As you can see on my screen right now, I've got The Harvest website pulled up. You're welcome to join us in person or online at www.graftedin.com. You can scroll down into the page and see that Pastor Mark has been going through these recent sermons that are related to the Passover and, of course, with a view towards Pentecost. Remember, we're counting the Omer as we work our way from the um, season of being set free by the blood of Messiah, which was Passover, and we're working our way through the Omer to being um, receiving the words of Messiah and being filled with the spirit of Messiah, which is what Pentecost um, commemorates. And then the account of the Omer is the connection between those two. Look at the sermons that I've got on my screen right now, recent sermons, Where Do We Go After Egypt? Pastor Mark is going through the series right now, and it's highly recommended that you... Um, join in on the uh, study. If you can't make it in line, then at least um, access the um, uh, YouTube videos. I've got my own Torah teaching website. and You can find me online at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com. Have a look around from the homepage. You can see the cluster of links on my screen right now. That'll take you to any number of different studies that I make available. These days, many things are turning from internet, written commentaries to... You, uh, uh, iTunes podcast, MP3 files, audio files, and also YouTube videos. So, speaking of YouTube videos, when you have the time, check out my YouTube channel. It's a small channel. I've only been around for five years or so, but the Lord has blessed me immensely to be able to reach out and share what is on my heart with you, with the rest of you watching the YouTube videos right now. Find me on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries, all one word. That's my YouTube channel. Um, and from the homepage, you can see I've got lots of popular uploads, live internet studies, Exploring the Shema study, What's on Paul's Mind study, A Minute or Two with the Word series, Hebrews Unplugged, Thoughts on Chapter 7 through 10, Shomer Mitzvot studies, Feasts of the Lord studies, and different um, other resources that include uh, Torah portion commentaries, highlights from the Torah portion commentaries, and things like that. Um, and then when you click on the videos tab, you'll see uh, all the little thumbnails of the videos that I've been um, busily putting together. Um, count including the the most recent one uh, just just an hour ago according to this but we'll see so if you hit my YouTube channel do these five things for me real quick you ready I'm gonna rattle them off real quick but they'll be on the screen number one subscribe to my YouTube channel number two hit the little bell for notifications so you're in the loop number three hit the thumbs up icon that shows that you like what you're watching right number four um, hit the comments and share your comments, uh, share your, your thoughts with me and with other people out there. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. And number five, hit the, um, actually it goes, yeah, number five, uh, hit the share button and share the content with your other friends and family member on social media and things like that. These are the live internet studies, and so let me just give you some of the brief logistics on how to meet with us and uh, details like that. Um Going from the information that's on my website right now, you can see this is episode number 136 uh, that we're recording right now. The next meeting date, of course, for this recording is April 26, 2021, and that's the USA date that we're doing this recording. We meet each Monday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you'd like to meet with us, no matter where you're at in the world, you'd like to meet with us live, then um, set your clock against 
the uh, Central Standard Time in America, and that you'll be able to catch our studies. Uh, the hour-long study is broken up into two segments. There's the first 30-minute segment, which is Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts and Fasts and Food, oh my, and we're in part 53 tonight. And then the second segment is Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We're in paper two of three papers, pun intended there. And the, the paper is entitled Yahweh and Yeshua, and it's part 70 tonight. And then we've got a featured YouTube video that we're going to watch tonight as well from Leviticus 26, verse 3, entitled, If You Walk in My Statutes. So that's the general logistics of the, um, the live internet studies, if you care to join us. Some important details, you'll need Skype uh, on either your desktop or laptop or your smartphone or your iPad or your Android device or whatever you're using to connect uh, to these live studies. Uh, you'll also need the Skype group link, which uh, you can get from me if you go to my website at tatesaytor.com, scroll to the very bottom of the website to that black section where it says Weekly Parasha Archives, scroll down there, click on the little icon near the top but to the right, that looks like an envelope. See where the little button's pointing right now where it says email? Send me an email and say, Lariel, I'd like to join your comment, uh, join your live studies. And I'll be more than happy to send you the Skype link. And then you can join us for each weekly study. And then while you're down there, thoughtfully, uh, uh, prayerfully think about if God is uh, touching you to say, bless me. This is a way that you can do it. If the Lord is laying it on your heart to be a blessing um, to me financially, I could really use your support. I'm in a difficult time myself uh, living in South Korea without the um, benefit of being able to um, have a full-time job at the moment because of the pandemic and un being unemployed for such a long time uh, going on a year now is really impacted my finances. So if you'd like to help me out, this is the way to do it. Click the little, little yellow donate, donate button and it'll, you'll use PayPal to securely donate. And as I always say... Be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn now to Romans 14, Unplugged Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my! Remember, we're working our way down through this commentary that is available on my website at tatetor.com. I put it together oh, quite some time ago, but I update it very frequently. The last update was February 17th, 2021, so that's this year. And so basically, we're working our way through the introduction, background, and historical audience. And um, we've been reading through this material. A lot of it uh, discusses the... Uh, the issues surrounding um, the recipient of Paul's letter, uh, Jews and Gentiles in the in in this particular area of Rome, and um, particularly how the impact of the Claudius, the Emperor Claudius uh, edict. Um, uh, profoundly impacted the Jewish community there. How many people were expelled? Does it matter for our reading of Romans, Romans and things like that? And we're we're going to finish going through that. But right now, I've diverted our attention to. Let me just scroll down and stop right there. I've diverted our attention to this supplemental supplemental material. Um, from uh, David Stern, Dr. Stern, we looked at last week, where we talked about Acts chapter 28, Paul visiting Rome there finally, which would have been, what, five years after he wrote the letter uh, to the book of Romans, um, or so, somewhere around that uh, time frame, and how that uh, um, gives us a better appreciation for Paul's heart of reaching out to Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, 
not so that the two groups can form mutually exclusive uh, clubs. You know, the Jews on one side of the street, the Gentiles on the other side of the street. You guys have your own sets of different religious practices and holidays and, and different opinions on who should be keeping the Torah and, and what constitutes the scriptures. That's not what Paul was aiming at. Instead, as we're going to see tonight, Paul actually had this bigger uh, kingdom of God perspective, and we're going to study this concept. We're going to launch into it. We won't finish it tonight. This idea that if you read through the Old Testament, read through the Tanakh, God was developing a people for himself, and he started with Israel, but he worked from the blindness of Israel towards the Gentile uh, people groups that would be brought into this relationship of the family of God, family of Abraham. And then from there, we see that it's necessary to take the truth that the Gentiles have and share it once again with unbelieving national stumbling Israel. I'm, of course, describing some of the theology that you would encounter if you were to go back and read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 all in one setting. Also keep in mind that since this is a study on Romans chapter 14, that Paul has already written 9, 10, and 11. If you were reading the letter, or uh, if you were receiving the letter in its original uh, setting, right, when it was being read to you or dictated to you or... Uh, I'm not sure how the recipients would have received the letter. Uh, did they have individual copies that they read? Probably not. Probably someone stood up and read it for them. And then it just got distributed uh, throughout the Roman um, churches or, or home groups and things like that. So this is what we're looking at. Eventually, we're going to go back to my com commentary and pick up where it says conclusions, like you can see on my screen right now. And then we'll finish that out and then keep working our way verse by verse through the particular sections in Romans chapter 14. But for tonight... Let's look at another resource that I think is invaluable, in my opinion. Tim Haig of TorahResource.com. He's going to supply some supplemental material regarding this idea of kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. And this, of course, takes us back to the Gospels where this phrase is used. We're going to look at that. And we're borrowing this supplemental material so that we can better get inside the mind of the Apostle Paul as he wrote the letter to Romans, uh, the letter, uh, the letter to the book of Romans that we're reading, and he he had this idea in mind of he's reaching out to Jews, he's reaching out to Gentiles. In fact, let me just skip forward just real quick and give you an idea of where Romans 14 is going. We can see a snapshot of this by looking at Romans 15, starting in verse 7. This is the chapter after Romans 14, which is named after my study which my study is named after. In Romans 15, we looked at this a few weeks back as well. In Romans 15, verse 7 through, say, verse 13, Paul writes, quote, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, verse 8, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And then, Verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. Verse 10, and again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Verse 12, and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him where the Gentiles hope. And then the final verse in our brief uh, snapshot here, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So, 
Why did I bring this up? It's because if we look at the context of what Paul's emphasizing in this part of his letter, remember this comes after Romans 14, the study that we're looking at, Paul wants Jews and Gentiles to be working to, together with one another. Ultimately, we've got a bigger picture and a smaller picture, a bigger circle and a smaller circle. Maybe I'll put a little graphic on the screen here. The larger circle is national Israel. The smaller circle is remnant Israel. Of course, the Gentile nations are off to the side here, but as they are brought into proximity with national Israel, they overlap in that smaller slice known as remnant Israel, as you can see on my screen now, and that is the focus for Paul. Remnant Israel is the brotherhood of Christians, Jews and Gentiles, that he's writing the letter to. But national Israel over on this left-hand side is unbelieving national stumbling Israel, the anomaly that Paul recognizes in Romans chapters 9 through 11, as still in need of the Messiah but not outside of the covenant brotherhood that Paul recognizes as the larger context framing uh, his letter as well. Otherwise, why would he want Jews and Gentiles, uh, why would he even bother, bother writing about Gentiles glorifying God with and among in, and in the midst of the people, his people? Look at verse 10 in Romans 15 again. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And verse 11, and again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles and that all the people extol him. So it's Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. Um, in fact, uh, in verse 9, I should have read that earlier. The Gentiles glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Notice that these are promises of course, personified by Messiah himself uh, when it talks about, I will praise you among the Gentiles, verse 9, things like that. Notice these verses express the heart of what Paul was understanding about being commissioned by God, by Yeshua, to take the good news to the Gentiles for the purpose of taking the good news back to the Jews. So when we're talking about salvation history, in Paul's mind, salvation started with Israel, worked its way to the Gentiles, and now it needs to turn around and go right back to national, unbelieving, stumbling Israel, so that all of God's people can join together and worship as one family. This is why we need to understand the background behind um, the, the recipients of Paul's letter and um, the impact on you know, Jews being expelled from Rome, and then should the Gentiles then just consider that they've, they're just going to um, make it uh, on their own now, they're going to survive on their own without any Jewish presence, has God written off Israel? Those are topics that we're really discussing. So let's turn to Matthew. Um, uh, Tim Haig's got a commentary to the book of Matthew where we find this phrase, Kingdom of Heaven. And we're going to use this uh, uh, supplementary material um, to uh, help uh, to enhance our appreciation of understanding that when Paul's writing to Gentiles in Rome with small Jewish presence there as well because the Jews had begun to trickle back into Rome after the edict expired, then what Paul understands is that the Gentiles have a responsibility to the Jewish communities, even though they're the disenfranchised, even though they're the minority of the group, even though they've got their quirks, you know, when it comes to religious uh, observances and understanding of Torah and things like that. We've got to work out our differences so that we can accomplish the goal that God has set forth for us as a covenant community, Jews and Gentiles together, right? So let's just pick, let's jump right into this. It shouldn't take too long. I'm just going to mainly read. I'll stop and interject just a little bit. We're going to take a bite out of this tonight, and we'll pick up the rest next week. All right. Starting with Tim Hagen, see on my screen the highlighted part. 
uh, Tim Haig asked the question, what is meant by the phrase the kingdom of heaven? The Hebrew, you can see there, says Malchut Shemaim. All right, here are Haig's um, comments. First, the use of heaven, as often in the rabbinic liturgy, is a circumlocution for the ineffable name, and thus in English translations that capitalize names, referring to God, it should be written kingdom of heaven. You understand what he's saying there? Circumlocution is the idea of substituting one word for another word so that you can respect the first word. You don't want to use it, or for whatever reason it's um, inappropriate to use, or maybe you just want to uh, make a, a reference to it without using the, the name directly. So, um, for instance, I wouldn't just walk up to President Biden and say, Hi, Joe Biden, can I have a word with you? All right, that's not respectful. But I could say, Mr. President, okay, that's a title, but in some, in my little example here, it could also function as a circumlocution. Um, or I could say the commander-in-chief. Again, a title, but we're talking about substituting uh, one phrase or title or word for a different phrase or title or word so that we can respectfully not use the first one. So kingdom of heaven with a capital H on the word heaven is the word, the word heaven there is actually a stand-in for kingdom of God or kingdom of uh, Yahweh. Of course, religious Jews in Paul's day and religious Jews today try to um, avoid saying that, that name. So that's, that's all we're talking about. So we can say kingdom of heaven, but we know what we're really saying is kingdom of YHVH, or kingdom of the um, uh, Tetragrammaton, kingdom of God. Heg continues, thus the kingdom of heaven is equivalent to the kingdom of God, right? There's no, they're not different, they're the same thing. Once again, Matthew has indicated that he's telling his story within a Jewish context for the use of a substitute word for the sacred name. As we already know, it was common among the Judaisms of his time. Let's keep reading Tim Haig. The phrase kingdom of heaven is used exclusively by Matthew 32 times. It is not found elsewhere in the apostolic scriptures. Isn't that interesting? The equivalent phrase kingdom of God is also used by Matthew in a few different places. And it is the phrase used by the other gospel writers as well as in the epistles. So Paul uses kingdom of God instead of kingdom of heaven. Thus the notion that kingdom of heaven denotes something different than the phrase kingdom of God is without substance. Tim Haig continues, In short, the kingdom of heaven is the rule of God, the place and time in which his kingship is both established and received. It, therefore, was part of the apocalyptic message of the prophets who foresaw the regathering, listen up, the regathering of Israel, the defeat of her enemies, her return in obedience to Torah, and the blessings that would be uh, that would come as a result not only upon the nation of Israel itself, but also upon all nations. At the heart of the prophetic promise of God's rule at the end of days was the appearance of the Messiah who would bring God's redemption for his people and establish justice upon the earth. Okay, so let's continue looking at what Tim Hagos has to say here in his commentary about the kingdom of heaven. This um, frames our understanding of Paul's purpose and of writing his letter to the recipients at Rome because Paul read through the prophets. Paul had an understanding of the promises that were given to Israel of old and how it, um, how it was going to include bringing the Gentiles in for the purpose of uh, glorifying God in the end, the eschatological uh, um, uh, implications or, or uh, impact that it would have on Israel as a people group that 
the Gentiles were going to be brought in and included in the promises that God made with Israel of old, not excluded. From Israel's historical perspective, as a people group, they were kind of blinded to this mystery of the gospel, how that the Gentiles as Gentiles will be brought into the promise of salvation and the um, of the promises that God made with the forefathers. But at the same time, Israel's blindness would happen so that Gentiles would be brought in and that these Gentiles need to continue reaching out to disenfranchised Jews in order to complete the family picture that was being described in the promises given to Abraham. So are you understanding why we need this concept of kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and its and its impact on Israel as a people and in their history and in the, the prophetic promises that God gave to Israel, right? These end-time promises that Paul... When he read through the prophets, he suddenly began to realize the end is not so far away. In Messiah, the end time promises that were given to Israel through the prophets are actually being brought near. So Paul has this kind of near yet far away or far yet near prospect, prospect, uh, um, concept going on, uh, uh, the near and far uh, concept that we, we've heard in, this, in studies. I hope you've heard about it. Um, so let's talk about this. Tim Haig has this little excursus, which is like a little digression or a, a supplementary commentary within a commentary, a section within a, in a commentary, and so that's why we're using it here. So let's just read some of this. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is a dominant theme throughout the Gospels. As noted above, Matthew alone uses both the designation kingdom of heaven, where Uranus, heaven, represents the common uh, Hebrew circumlocution Shemaim for the divine name, like we talked about, kingdom of heaven, um, or, you know, um, Malkut, Malkut Shemaim for the divine name, and the phrase kingdom of God. That the kingdom theme is dominant in the synoptics is evident from the repeated use of the term itself, Basileia which is kingdom. And Matthew, 55 times. Mark, 20 times. Luke, 45 times, right? And John uses it five times. So it shows up a lot, not as much in all of the Gospels, but the point being is that, Tim Haig says, the kingdom of God continues as a dominant theme in Luke's second volume in Acts, where the opening verses refer to it. And the book concludes with the notice regarding Paul that he continued, quote, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Yeshua Messiah with all openness unhindered. That's also important for us because Paul is the one who's writing the book of Romans that we're reading. And unless we get inside the mind of Paul, we're not going to really appreciate why he's writing, what he's writing to the people that he's writing to. Let's keep reading. In the Pauline epistles, of course, Romans falls into that category, the kingdom theme continues 14 times, just using the phrase kingdom of heaven, while the remainder of the epistles use the term kingdom in reference to God's rule 10 times. So whenever you see that in the epistles or in the gospels or in the book of Acts, kingdom, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, or just kingdom by itself, keep in mind that it's the uh, mention of a concept that's already been established and built up in the prophetic writings that Israel carried with them. And so it's not something brand new. It's not like the Gentiles are the exclusive uh, recipients of this kingdom and the, Gent and the Jews have been kicked out or have been washed away or been set aside or replaced or superseded or something like that. 
the purpose of having this discussion on the kingdom of heaven is to understand how Jews and Gentiles plug into one another and work together to bring about the purpose of God building and establishing the family that God is establishing, the Abrahamic family that uh, we've got in view here. Beyond the explicit use of the term kingdom with its various added descriptive terms, the concept of the reign of God is also implicit in many other contexts and in the overall message of the apostles. Understand what I'm saying there? Um, understand what Tim Haig is referring to? All right, this is important as we're studying the book of Romans because we've got Jewish minority, disenfranchised people groups that are trying to trickle back into Rome after the uh, edict. How many had been expelled? We don't know for sure. We'll go back and look. continue to look at that. However, what we do know is that we have a Gentile uh, majority. And so it's within the context of understanding Paul telling the strong and the weak to work with one another, right? Smaller context. Jewish and Gentile believers in Messiah, brothers in Christ, they have to work together with one another and not destroy one another in their effort to understand the socio-religious preferences between Jews and Gentiles, uh, fast days, feast days, holy days, food preferences, table fellowship preferences versus Gentiles who are being brought into this discussion. But the larger context is the brotherhood of, co of covenant members known as national stumbling uh, national unbelieving stumbling Israel, right? non-Christ uh, believing Jews, who would still have been part of the picture, and the proof is Acts chapter 28, when Paul visits Rome five years after writing the letter, and he still meets out meets with the um, unbelieving national stumbling Israel um, and discusses some uh, uh, orders of importance with them. Let's keep reading Tim Haig. This dominant theme of the reign and rule of God among the affairs of mankind is based upon the prophetic messages of the Tanakh. It was not a new teaching brought by our master and his apostles. This is very important. I'll probably start here again next week and reiterate this. Um, it's not a new teaching that Jesus and the disciples came up with, but was spoken of by Israel's prophets and anticipated throughout the generations of Israel. This would include, of course, Paul, who was a member of Israel. That's why I keep mentioning the smaller context, right? Remnant Israel, remember that little graphic I had earlier with the two circles, national Israel over on the left, Gentile nations on the right, and the two coming together in the middle under remnant Israel right in the middle, that little almond slice. Remember, for Paul, remnant Israel exists within national Israel, not exclusive from her. All right. Um, Tim Hay continues, the nation of Israel was viewed as a kingdom of priests and thus a nation set apart to God. Remember Exodus 19.6, quote, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, end quote. When God established the throne of a reigning king, beginning with Saul, the fact is clearly established that he intended Israel's kingdom to be eternal, Tim Hay uh, informs us. Samuel informs Saul that he had obeyed the commandments of God, that had he obeyed the commandments of God, quote, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, end quote. That's 1 Samuel 13, 13. Of course, we know that, Samuel, uh, that Saul did not obey. He disobeyed, and therefore God removed him as king and established David in his place. Let's continue. It is this aspect of an enduring, unending kingdom that formed the eschatological expectations of the prophets. In the promise made to David... God foretells that David's son Solomon would build the temple and that he would, quote, establish the throne of his kingdom forever, end quote, reference 2 Samuel 7.13. Indeed, in the Davidic covenant, God says of David, quote, your house, i.e. your dynasty, and your kingdom shall endure 
before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever, end quote. That's 2 Samuel 7, 16. So, we're going to end off right there, and we'll pick this up again next week. I'm only whetting your appetite for this week. This idea of kingdom of God starts way back in the prophets. It's a promise that uh, directly impacts the people of Israel, of, of course, uh, uh, as it's carried along through the Davidic line, through the Davidic uh, promises that are built on top of the other covenantal promises God already gave to Israel, right? The Mosaic uh, Covenant, the Abraham, Abrahamic Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant, and then now we have the Davidic Covenant, and, and then ultimately we have the Messianic Covenant made with Messiah, Yeshua, the ultimate quintessential son of Abraham and the descendant of David. All of this is going to um, uh, bring... Paul's writings to um, to light as we go back and look at Romans 15 one more time. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Right There's that kingdom of God promises all over again. When you read chapter 15 verse 8 here, which of course is after chapter 14 that we're studying, keep in mind that Paul has the um, Abrahamic promises being brought into fullness through the Mosaic Covenant, through the Davidic Covenant, and ultimately through the Messianic Covenant. So Yeshua is the one who brings these promises to pass, this kingdom of God concept that was promised in the prophets. Yeshua is the one who is the only one could, who can um, um, uh, uh, actualize it. Christ became a servant to the circumcised, why? To show God's truthfulness. What truthfulness? The truthfulness of these promises that are stacked up that we refer to as the kingdom of God. And why did he do this? Um, look at verse 9, and I'll close out with this. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it's written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And then verse 10, and again, as it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So you have to understand that the Gentiles are brought into the the plan they're brought into the kingdom of God uh, promises alongside of Israel, not displacing them and overtaking them, but alongside of Israel and rejoicing with his people. Metatu la o la like it says in the Greek, with the people of God, not to the exclusion. The Gentiles don't come in and replace God's people. The Gentiles don't come in and and create their own religion as separate and distinct from the Jewish people so that we have two uh, simultaneous uh, people groups of God rejoicing yet separated by their religious differences and things like that. That's not what Paul envisioned. That's not what the prophets envisioned. That's not what the Davidic promises envisioned. That's not what the Mosaic, the Torah of Moshe envisioned. And lastly, it's not what the Abrahamic promises envisioned as well. So that's going to do it for a look at um, this supplementary material tonight. Next week, we'll um, pick up again right here where we left off with this yellow uh, highlighted section. And we'll read some more of this uh, information from Tim Hague. Actually, I'll probably start... Let me just give you a sneak peek. Let me scroll down a bit to where I can see the highlight again. And that's where we're going to start. Here we go. We're going to start right here next week with the summary. It's clear then that when we take a survey of the kingdom language in the apostolic scriptures, that the kingdom of heaven is indeed already and not yet. We'll start there next week. But for now, that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my. 
Okay, let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And let's just drop all the way down to the bottom of this uh, webpage that I've got pulled up on my website and pull up the table of um, scriptures that we're going to be looking at tonight. Recall we're going through this chart that Karm put together. And um, last we looked at last week, we looked at how God the Father searches the heart, God the Son searches the heart, and God the Holy Spirit searches all things which must also include the heart. And we saw that through um, uh, use of the various passages that you can see on my screen. I also pulled in some other passages. Go back and listen to last week's um, podcast or go to my YouTube channel and catch the um, YouTube videos uh, from last week's teachings. Let's turn tonight to a few short verses. Carmen only has two verses listed. The topic is we belong to, and under the column for God, we've got John 17, 9. So we belong to God the Father. And then under the column for the Son, we've got John 17, 6. So just three verses earlier. However, under the column for the Holy Spirit, you'll notice that's just blank. What I've decided to do in my own research is I decided to develop their concept here just a bit further. I found some actually passages from the apostolic scriptures that do seem to indicate that since the Holy Spirit has taken up residency within us, then there's this sort of ownership going on as well. And so um, I decided to add my own verse there. But before I look at all of those verses, I decided instead of starting with God the Father in John 17, 9, I decided to start way back in the Tanakh, in the, um, apostol in the uh, antecedent theology that gives us the background to understanding how God has already established ownership of his people through Israel. And it's from there that we launch as Christians, as, as generally Gentile Christians or as the church, into a better understanding how God the Father owns us as his very own. We belong to God the Father. We belong to Yeshua as his very people. We should be starting in the beginning of the Bible and understanding how God has explained that Israel is his people and go from there. Indeed, I hold to a theology that teaches that Gentile Christians, or the wild olive tree, is actually grafted into remnant Israel, which is um, connected to national Israel, the people of God, the family of Abraham, etc., etc., Romans chapter 11. Thus, the belonging from the church to God or to Messiah or whoever, whomever, actually starts at the Israel stage. So, let's go there first. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 3, this is a familiar passage for many of you who've been Bible students for any length of time, and start with the idea that God says of Israel that they are his people. We can see this in English, we could jump over into the Greek and get a little bit more technical, and we're going to look at a little bit of the technicalities tonight, but for the most part I'm just going to stay in the English, because the context tells us no matter what translation you're looking at, the context determines what we need to understand. Starting in Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 6, um, God speaking to Moshe says, And he said, so God is addressing Moses, And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, speaking to Moses. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is, of course, the burning bush incident that we're all familiar with. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of who? Of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. So God right away lets Moses know that the people in Egypt 
are my people. We could jump over to the right side of the screen and um, look at some of the Greek, I'm sorry, some of the uh, Hebrew, this phrase that I've highlighted on the screen right now. Look at this right here. This is where in the English it says, Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people. In the Hebrew it says, Vayomer Adonai ra'o ra'iti et ani ami. So we have ani ami. And the breakdown basically is the last two words that I'm really focusing on. The affliction, ani, or the oppression, or oni, it was probably better how it's pronounced, oni, um, et oni ami. But the final word in the Hebrew that I highlighted is ami, ami. And this is comprised of the Hebrew word am, which is the first two letters in the three letters that you see, am, which is people, and then the very last letter, if I can highlight it there, the yud, is the indicating uh, the indication of the personal possession that it is mine, the people of me, the people which are mine. Thus, in English, it comes across as my people. So this is literally what it says in the Hebrew as well. The, these are my people. And this is important because other places in the text is going to say the people of Israel, um, and it doesn't necessarily say my people. For instance, if we drop down to verse 9, God says to Moses, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. When he earlier, a few verses earlier, simply he said, my people. In the Hebrew here, uh, let's see, where is it? The cry of the people of Israel uh, would be this part. Um, and over in the right side of the screen, um, the Hebrew says, Va'ata hine za'akat b'nei Yisrael. Well, there's no um in there, like we looked at earlier, ami. What gives? God calls the what what the English translators put as the people of Israel. Literally, in Hebrew simply says b'nei Yisrael, which is a contract state composed of the word ben, which is son, and Yisrael or sons of, b'nei, construct. B'nei Yisrael, literally, sons of Israel. There's still the ownership going on in the construct, with the yod at the very end, be, uh, you know, ben would be son, and then the yod at the very end would be uh, their sons, or the sons of, in the construct. It, it connotes ownership when I say construct. The construct is indicated by this little um, dash that shows up. Um, the, the sons that belong to Israel. So, just without getting ultra-technical, the sons of Israel is what it really says in Hebrew. Um, I Behold, now I've heard the cry of the sons of Israel. Even though over on the left side of the page in the English it says, now behold the cry of the people of Israel. So we got people here in verse 9, which seems to be the same as people up here in verse 7, but they're actually two different Hebrew words. Does that mean they're two different um, uh, uh, entities going on? Of course not. Context tells us that it's, it's the same people. The point being is, right away we see that God is establishing this ownership. They are my people. They belong to me, right? I claim ownership of them. Let's jump over to Exodus chapter 4, and we'll see this played out as well. Same dialogue, same with, with Moses, right? Exodus 3, Exodus 4, and then we're going to look closely at Exodus 6 here in a moment. God is still dialoguing with Moses about sending him 
to the Pharaoh to explain to Pharaoh that these are my people and that you need to let them go. So that's the context of this whole, uh, uh, these chapters that are in view. In Exodus 4, starting in verse 22, God gives another designation to Israel. And this one's important as well. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Notice the um, the personal, the, the possessives of my firstborn and son. So let's see what this would look like in the... Um, Hebrew. Uh, this time I think we can do the whole verse. Verse 22, right side of the page, says, Amarta el paro ko amar adonai b'nei, I'm sorry, b'ni v'kori Yisrael. B'ni v'kori, v'kori, I should really be using the guttural there. V'kori, b'ni v'kori. These two words right here are, um, the sons of mine and the firstborn of mine. If I were to uh, break apart the v'ni, v'ni is what we saw earlier, ben, right? B'ni, ben. Uh, but the yod, the final, um, very last uh, piece that you can see, let's see if I can highlight just the yod. There we go. Without clicking it, because this is a hyperlink and it'll take me into the, the um, lexicon if I click it. Um, b'ni, so the sons of me, or the sons of mine, or my sons, and then v'kor is the root word b'kar, or b'kor, which indicates the first thing that breaks the, the matrix of the womb, whether it be a, a human or an animal, so the firstborn. Um, and then the, you can see again uh, the final yod letter, which was in the letter word over here as well, of, of me, or of mine. So we could really stretch out the, the, the translation as saying, the sons of me the firstborn of me, or the sons of mine, and the firstborn of mine. But in English, you just smooth it out as my firstborn son, or something to that effect. And it's also, um, I believe it's a construct, construct state uh, because of uh, its connection to the noun Israel over there at the end of the verse, even though there's no little dash. So, if I'm correct, I might be wrong on that. But nevertheless, um, <clears throat> the point being, without getting ultra-technical, is that God is saying to Moses to tell Pharaoh, these are my sons. This is my firstborn son. He even goes goes on to um, threaten Pharaoh in verse twenty three and say and I say to you right God speaking to Pharaoh through Moses let my son go that he may serve me and if you refuse to let him go behold I will kill your firstborn son and again the same possessives uh, the firstborn son of you your firstborn son right bincha book Korecha, uh, you know, jumps from first person to uh, second person now. Um, but nevertheless, the possessive is still seen in these uh, suffixes at the very end, the ha and the uh, ha right there. Um, same root words that we saw earlier, the bean and the bechor, same as in verse 22, because that's the root of the of the um, of the words themselves. But God is letting Israel know. That not only are they his people, but they are even intimately connected with the idea of his firstborn son. This is the antecedent theology that is going to inform us when it comes to identity of God our Father, and we are his people, indeed we are his firstborn son. We are family members, right? We belong to him. Let's continue. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, again, God says, I will take you to be my people. 
and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. All of this is not only familial language, right, language that's related to families, right, we already saw son and, and people, but this is covenant language. I will take you to be my people. Uh, for our interest, we could look at just the first, um, maybe the first clause right here in the Hebrew over on the right side of the page. And for the phrase, uh, my people in the English, this would correspond to... Uh, I don't have to highlight that much. It would correspond to just this word, la'am. But prior to that, just right in front of it, we have li. Li would be me or mine. Uh, this is like, you know, I will take you to me. I will take you unto myself as a people. And notice it doesn't say my people. But it could, I think, because the uh, the, the um, lamid right in front of the am, the word am there, the, the le in front of it, the the, the um just that very small prefix letter there could indicate my people. I believe it does. My Hebrew's not as strong as I'd like it to be when it comes to all of the grammar tags, but I think that's what's going on. Li la'am, me unto, uh, as my people, or uh, unto being my people, something to that effect. And uh, uh, we could even see how the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek rendering from the Hebrew over into Greek, captured this idea, which is why the translators put in English as my people, although other ver uh, versions of the translation might say, I will take you to be a people of unto me, a people unto me, or something to that effect. But context, context, we don't even have to get technical with the Hebrew or the Greek, but let's look just briefly. If we pull up the English of the um, Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew. Um, the first English uh, that you're seeing on the screen out there is essentially a, a King James version, and I will take for I will take you to me for a people. Notice it says a people, versus the previous version of the ESV says my people. Right. Well, that's because earlier it says to me. So the context, even if in the Greek in the uh, Hebrew it literally says a people, right, where it says um lilaam. Remember the word am there is the people and the prefix luth there would be either unto or as to or um, could be indicating uh, ownership there, but it might not be. And the point is it doesn't matter because in the um, context of the whole sentence, God says these are a people for me. And later on the second clause says, and I will be to you a God, right? V'hayti lechem le'elohim. I will be unto you the God or a God. So we can also uh, confirm that the translators over into the Greek, if I pull this up right there in the Greek, they also understood that God is taking or receiving you unto himself as his people and that this people will be able to identify that this God is their God. The Greek says, Kai lempsamai imauto humas laon emoi kai esamai humon theos. And in the Greek, this uh, phrase right there, laon emoi, the people of me, right? I will take unto myself, imauto, imauto, uh, you, humas, La'an emoi, the people of me, kai esamai humon te'as, and, and, uh, and I will be uh, the God of you, literally, uh, there, humon. So um, we can see from context that this is God explaining way back in the Old Testament. Israel is mine, 
the people are mine and you can't separate me from my people they i own them and they are mine and i am their god and they can claim ownership and that's the antecedent theology that we need to uh grasp before we jump into passages out of the apostolic scriptures where let's start reading from yeshua's high priestly prayer where he's praying to god his father and our father of course and he's praying to god and he's explaining how he has this heart to unify his people that God has given to him. And there's so much packed into his highest priestly prayer, which I believe starts in John chapter 15 and goes all the way through 16 and 17, if I'm correct. Uh, go back and read those three chapters alone. Study them, meditate on them, um, chew on them. Let the word saturate uh, your soul and your fiber and let the Holy Spirit uh, activate them alive to your mind and to your heart and to your spirit. And just, I mean, these are pr promises from the master himself. It doesn't get any better than that when you have the very son of God, the second person of the Trinity, praying for you to the Father on your behalf. I mean, wow. All right, so look at what Yeshua says here. John 17, starting in verse 6. Remember, Karm says that God the Father is who we are. We belong to God the Father in John 17:9, but we belong to God the Son in John 17:6. So let's just look at the whole context by going a little bit out of reverse, out of order. I'm not going to start with John 17:9 and then move to 17:6. I'm going to start with six and go down to nine. In 17:6, Yeshua says, and he's speaking. The immediate context is that he's speaking of the Talmudim who were with him there, the disciples, the twelve. But he obviously. We know by now that these words, uh, in the broader sense, apply to all believers who have named the name of Yeshua as their Master, as their Messiah, as their Lord, as their Savior. Therefore, the belonging, the ownership, also extends to us. It didn't just stop with the disciples, is the point I'm trying to make, even though they were the immediate recipients. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of, excuse me, uh, the people whom you gave me out of the world. Notice right away, God takes these people, and gives them to the Son. You gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Right? Makes sense. They're God's people, and God gives them to the Son, and they've kept your word. So right away we see, again, ownership. They were God's, God the Father. God gifts them to his Son, right, as an inheritance, as um, ownership, and so now, um, they didn't transfer ownership so that God himself doesn't own them anymore. It's the mystery of the Trinity, is that we still belong to God, but it's through the mystery of the um, incarnation of the Son that we receive this ownership, we receive this uh, 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 belonging uh, through his sacrifice, his own personal sacrifice. Look at verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Again, Yeshua is deferring to the Father when it comes to um, the, these blessings that are transferred uh, to the people of God. They know that everything that you've given me is, uh, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Um, and then in verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me. So we receive the words of God through the Son of God. I've given them the words that you gave me. God gives the words to Yeshua, and Yeshua confers those words to us. He transfers them. He, he explains what the, what the Father has explained to him. He turns around and explains that right to us. So that we receive the very words of God the Father as um, being spoken from God's chief representative, namely his firstborn son, his son Yeshua, his only begotten son. And they have received them, right, speaking of his disciples, namely us, and have come to know in truth, 
listen to this, that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So uh, it's within the context that Yeshua continues in his high priestly prayer. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Right? Notice the co- the covenant context of his prayer. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the whole world. The world in general, even though the whole world has been created by God and in, and in this general benevolent sense, God owns everything. He owns the world. He owns the universe. He owns everyone in the world, if you want to extend the ownership to that level. But on a covenant level, God only sets his affections on those who are covenantly in contra in, in in relationship with him. It's kind of like marriage, right? Um, I can be friends with other females or even other males, but I'm only in covenant with one female, and she's in this apartment with me right now, right? There's only one person, and that's my wife. So this is an exclusive arrangement. I'm praying for them. I'm praying for those who are in covenant relationship with you, Father, and thus in covenant relationship with me. I'm not praying for the world. They're not in relationship with you or with me. In fact, they're enemies (laughs) by default because they've not yet accepted who I am. But so I'm not praying for them, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for them, and I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me. Again, the covenant relationship there, just like Israel of old, that God was in covenant with. Remember, God's going to go on to say in, in other passages that we didn't read tonight, but in the prophets, you, Israel, alone have I uh, formed a relationship. You alone have I known. That's covenant language when he says, I've known. It's, it's even the same language that's used to speak of the covenant relationship at, at a sexual level between man and between a husband and wife. Uh, the husband and the wife know one another, like Adam knew his wife. And in that knowing, in that knowledge, that relationship, uh, they produced offspring. Well, the same uh, covenant language is spoken of God and Israel. You alone, Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. I'm only in covenant relationship with one people group. The same language, same concept going on with Yeshua here. So I'm not praying for the world at large. I'm only praying for those you've given me, for they are yours. They are yours. And then he can rounds the whole thing out in verse 10 by saying, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And we see this unity between the Father and the Son, and the mystery of the uh, incarnation, and the mystery of the Trinity, of how this relationship um, between the Father and the Son is is just unbreakable. And we as believers are tied up in that. So it's so unfortunate when I hear Unitarians try to argue and wrestle the mystery of the unity of the, the, the triune nature of God away from the way the Bible describes it because I believe it it damages uh, the heart of of the way we believers understand how we are uh, covenantally bound to God and to Yeshua at the same time through that mystery. It's so unfortunate when I hear Unitarians attack the, um, the, 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 the mystery of the Trinity, trying to break the pieces apart, separate the persons, and um, make them distinct, and not having that interconnection, that, 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 um, that uh, unity within a mystery and, and, and such. So I think you guys know where I'm talking, uh, where I'm going with that. All right, let's keep going with this study. We're almost done. It's not going to take very long. In Romans chapter 8, remember, Karm's chart didn't list anything for the Spirit. But I think that we could use other verses to work our way towards understanding that if the Spirit has taken up residency within us, the very Spirit of God or the Spirit of Messiah, depending on which verse you're looking at, then if He owns, if, if He is within us and we have surrendered our very being to Him, then aren't we describing ownership, right? If He owns all, all of our heart, um, 
you know, in the spiritual sense, in the ownership sense, the covenant sense, even if there's still sin kind of hiding out in different areas, that's a, that's a different point. But look at Romans chapter 8, the way Paul describes it, starting in verse 14, which, uh, let me just pause and tell you this. I highly recommend you go back and read the entire context of, of Romans chapter, say, start in verse 6 and work your way to 8, 6, 7, 8, that triad of, of chapters. Just like read my recommendation to read John chapter um, 15, 16, 17, then go back and read also Romans 6, 7, 8 as, a, as one unit. It's a short read. Meditate on it. Pray on it. Dwell on it. Memorize it if you can. If you can memorize all of that, that, that big chunk, you know, more power to you. But this is a good section where Paul's discussing this idea of the relationship that man has to sin and our relationship that we have now to God and, and the redemption through Yeshua. And it culminates in this Romans chapter 8 where it's his, it's his concentrated Holy Spirit passage. He uses the word spirit, the Greek word uh, pneuma or some equivalent similar to that. He concentrates all of that in this section, in, in all of his letters. If you look at all of his letters as a whole, then this is where most of the spirit talk is going to be found. And so this is a spirit passage. Let's look at it. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Right away, we see this sons of God, the huioe esintheu. Um, the uh, we are the sons of God. The huioi is uh, sons. Uh, the the asin is the uh, the r uh, the the, the uh, b verb, and then theu is God. Uh, so n- remember, remember what did I say? But way back in Exodus, God says to Pharaoh, "Let my firstborn go. Let Israel go. He's my firstborn." And if you don't let him go, then I'm going to slay your firstborn. So here we have this familial language again, not familiar, familial language that's related to families, the inheritance language, covenant language, ownership language. You are sons of God because of the spirit that you are being led by. Verse 15, Paul says, for, did you, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Remember the theme of Egypt again, slavery. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This is so apropos. apropos? Is that how we say that? Apropos? Um, appropriate? Apropos? This is so appropriate given the context of the season that we're in. Passover leading through, uh, counting our way through the Omer towards Pentecost, right? Passover is in the rearview mirror, but not forgotten. We can still see it. And um, Pentecost is on the horizon. So we're connecting the dots between Passover and Pentecost using the Omer count that we're in right now. Paul is talking about how believers not receive the spirit of slavery. That's the theme of Egypt all over again. We don't fall into fear because of slavery. Why? Because we've received the spirit of adoption as sons. There's that familial language again, that family language, the adoption as sons. And I'm not even saying that right, familial. I'll have to look that up later. Adoption as sons. Notice this. It's by this adoption as sons, the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, the Father. And literally in Greek, Abba, Hapater. Um... Daddy God is how one preacher heard, I heard it say, Daddy God. Most of you as Christians are familiar with the uh, reality that this word Abba is a um, term of endearment. It's what little children call their father. They don't say father. They say daddy, right? Daddy is a term of endearment. It's, it's, it's something, if you want to get your father's heart, you want to get his attention as a little child, run up to him, give him a big hug, and call him daddy, right? That's just going to melt his heart. And that's what happens when we through the Spirit, understand our relationship, not just to our Heavenly Father as our Father, but as our Daddy. He's our Daddy, right? And so, um, who's your Daddy? <laughs> God's your Daddy. I couldn't resist. So, um, um, Abba, Father. And it's the point I'm trying to um, highlight is it's the Spirit 
of adoption. So if the Spirit has adopted us, couldn't we say that we're owned by the Spirit? The Spirit has, has taken up ownership of us. So even though Karm didn't have the Spirit listed in their chart, I think that this fits. And my last two verses for our study, then we'll give, you know, bring it to a close. Uh, one of them is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is Paul again. And let's drop down to verse, again, this is not in... Um, this is not in Carm's chart. This is just uh, my own uh, reckoning, my own study. Paul, st uh, starting at verse 9, Paul says, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So at first, we can see this, this kind of this identifying, identifying idea of uh, God owns us as fellow workers, right? He's, this is employer-employee relationship. We're God's fellow workers. We're the employees, and God is the employer. So we work for him. And then he switches the metaphor to agriculture. We're God's field, right? Again, ownership. God owns us. We are the field in God's service. And then, again, a different metaphor. We are God's building, God's building, and then he uh, goes from that more metaphor of the building and uh, runs with it in verse 10 and 11 and, and 12 and things like that. So look at this. We're God's building. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9. And then from that context, same letter, same people group, three chapters later, we drop down to, I should have had these bookmarked earlier, but I didn't. Uh, we drop down to verse, where is it, where is it? There we go. In verse 19, near the very end of the chapter, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? A temple, a building again, same metaphor. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, in verse 20 he says, So glorify God in your body, which is the temple. So, what's the point? If the metaphor of the building or the temple is that God owns this building, God owns this body, God owns this temple, but Paul uses the language of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the... He could have said that your body is a temple of God. He said that in the previous few chapters. You are God's field, you are God's building. He could have also run with that same metaphor. Your body is a temple of God within you. I mean, there are other there are plenty of passages that explain how it's the Spirit of God or God that dwells in us or the Spirit of Messiah. But he says the temple of the Holy Spirit. He uses the phrase Holy Spirit. And thus, we can rightly say and state confidently that it is the Holy Spirit that owns us. If this building, this body that I'm in, belongs to the Holy Spirit, if it's the temple of the Holy Spirit, then I belong to him. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Paul explains that. You are not your own. Well, if I'm not my own, whose am I? I'm the Holy Spirit's. I belong to him. And so that's going to round out our study on the idea that we belong to God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We belong to God. Amen? Amen. Let's turn now to our liturgy. Let's turn now to the liturgy for tonight. As you can see on my screen, I've got Chabad.org pulled up. It's going to start our liturgy out with the counting of the Omer for Monday night, April 26, 2021. And um, let's scroll down to the screen. You can see on my screen right now, I've got some English over here on the left. 
and some transliterated Hebrew just above that. And right over on the right side, you can actually see the Hebrew script if you can read that. Let's start by reading this English right there over on the left, and then we'll just follow right up with the uh, Hebrew. The English says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the counting of the Omer. And right above that, or to the right side, whichever one you'd prefer to read, uh, the Hebrew says, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. And when we drop down into the page just a bit, we can see some English right here. Let's read that and then we'll read the Hebrew. The English says, Today is 30 days, which is four weeks and two days of the Omer. And the Hebrew to the very right of it says, Hayom Shloshim Yom Shechem Arba'ah Shavuot and that'll do it for the Omer Count liturgy. Okay, let's continue our liturgy from the Omer Count. Let's continue now and uh, look at the book of Ezekiel for our uh, passage out of the Tanakh. Remember, we've been working our way through this Ezekiel promise, starting in chapter 36, verse 22. We're going to read down through, oh, I'm going to say probably... Um, Maybe just verse 27, a very short read, 22 to 27. Then we'll actually jump over to Jeremiah. But let's start tonight. Uh, we read verse uh, 22 two weeks ago. We read 23 last week. So today let's read, um, tonight let's read 24 and 25. Let's read two verses since they're pretty short. All right. So we'll start right here on this side of the screen. Uh, the English says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. God, of course, speaking to national Israel. In verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. These are wonderful promises made to national corporate Israel that haven't yet come to pass. On an individual level, of course, they've been happening uh, throughout Israel's history. Individuals have been uh, uh, being forgiven of their sins, uh, being set free from their own personal sin and shame of Egypt, of sin and shame that's typified by Egypt, and they've been brought into a right relationship with God through His Son, Messiah, Yeshua. They've been cleansed from their, all their uncleannesses. But on a corporate level, this is still a future passage. Let's look at um, the Hebrew over here on the right side of the page. Um, the Hebrew says, And verse 25 says, And that'll do it for our liturgy from the Tanakh. Let's jump now over to the book of Romans and read just one short verse tonight. We're working our way through Romans chapter 14, which is our Romans 14 study. And in our liturgy, we're reading down through the, the verses uh, just systematically. We started in verse 1, and we went through verse uh, 2 and 3. Uh, and then last week, I think we read 4 and 5. So we read 1, 2, 3 the first week. Second, uh, last week we read uh, 4 and 5. And now let's read just verse 6 by itself, since it's such a long verse. Paul says in English, the one who observes a day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to 
God. And of course, the English or the uh, Hebrew, let's try that one more time. The Greek over on the right side of the page says, Ha fronon ten chimeron curio frone. And then in brackets, we have a variant uh, that shows up across the manuscript families uh, that it makes it a longer reading. The variant in brackets says, Kai ha me fronon ten chimeron curio u frone. End of bracket. And then we continue with the shorter reading, which says, Ha estion curio estie. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's watch the short little video, and then right after the video's over, we'll turn to closing and prayer, and that'll uh, round out the end of our study tonight, okay? You ready for the little video? You ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher, Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Leviticus 26, 11-13 reads, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke, and made you walk erect. This chapter opened up with this particular verse of instructions from verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. We find here near the end of Leviticus that God is shown to be a covenant-keeping God and that for his part, he promised numerous aspects of blessing and protection, of provision and of relationship if Israel would simply surrender to his lordship, allow God's spirit to soften their hearts, and as a result, become obedient to his gracious Torah. Today, God has not changed his method of covenant-keeping faithfulness among those who belong to his family. If you name the name of Yeshua as Lord, then according to Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 4, you belong to the family of Abraham, and thus you are one of God's children. This means that the words that we read about here in Leviticus belong to you too since they were given to God's people Israel, aka the sons of Abraham. Don't make the mistake of missing out on all that God has for you as his child. Your salvation does not depend on your amount of Torah obedience. However, Paul explicitly challenges us in Romans 2.13 to consider how justification and sanctification work hand in hand. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified, viz. blessed by God both temporally as well as eternally. And that'll do it for the short little video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. 
Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you so much for the opportunity to sit and study with the students from people near, from people far, people in this country and people around the world, connecting together through this medium of the Internet and the technology and the way it all comes together. It's just a wonderful tool when it's used by the hand of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to reach out and touch lives. I'm so humbled to be a part of this uh, ongoing plan, this salvation story that's unfolding um, among Jews and Gentiles who are being brought into this great family of Abraham by your great name, by your power, by your strength, and for the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Lord, that you are advancing the kingdom, that your uh, gospel message, your truth is going forth. Thank you for the lives that are being changed. Thank you for the victories that are won in Messiah Yeshua. It is his name that we celebrate. Bless you, Lord, for continuing to provide for us and to protect us during this um, extremely stressful pandemic time. In particular, as we read about um, uh, the, the the sad news coming from India these days, with with the, the increased um, uh, cases and the, the the deaths mounting, and Lord, it's just horrific. It's 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 almost unbearable to watch, and yet we know, or or to to, to read or or to listen to, depending on which news out you're using. But Lord, we know that you're in control. You have not relinquished control. You know what's going on. And you have plans and purposes that uh, you are implementing. And so, Lord, we trust you. We don't understand why things are going the way they're going. But we trust in you. We trust in your great word. We trust in your promises. You're the one who protect us and provide for us. Continue to raise us up, even in the face of, of the um, large uh, furloughing and the unemployment and the, 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 the um, inability to get a job, such as myself. I'm in that same position. Um, the difficulty of with, with, with just making it financially from day to day because of the pandemic um because of and lord also so much oh wow racial tension in america and and political unrest and and lord this things are seem like they're spinning out of control but you have not relinquished control you are in control and uh, things are happening according to your plans even even the wickedness of mankind has not escaped your your view you know what's going on and uh you are a god who who um will execute his promises and his plans to his people, and uh, we trust in you. And so continue to raise us up and protect us as families. Continue to heal us, Lord, and we will look to you as the one who provides for us and strengthens us. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. 
The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.